Welcome to another edition of Huddle Radio. Today's guest is Brian Kite, the CEO of Focus 3. Focus 3 is all about helping coaches, businesses, and educators develop into disciplined, driven leaders who create a strong culture. Brian has become a go-to source for coaches all across the country, most notably Ohio State's Urban Meyer. We'll chat about Brian's background, why culture is so important, and how a coach can go about building it. You're listening to Huddle Radio. Push play with Huddle. Hey, Brian. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Good, Dan. Um, I, I guess just starting high level, I mean, you know, you have had a lot of success. Uh, Urban Meyer is a guy who vouches for you. Coaches adore, you know, your work. What is it that you've done or what is it about, you know, what you offer that it has engendered such love in the football space? I think if I were to whittle it down to just one sentence, it's that we help coaches build the discipline they need to get the results they want. And when I talk about discipline, I, I don't just mean a coach getting his discipline, although that is a huge part of it. But there's a lot that goes into running a football program or any athletic program. But obviously football, uh, it hinges on discipline, discipline at the coaching level at the support level and discipline, obviously at the athlete level. And if you look at most successes and failures in the sport of football, they're not tied to athletic ability. They're not tied to intelligence. They're most closely tied to discipline. And again, we we help coaches build the discipline they need to get the results they want, because we have seen that as the most significant gap at the pro college and high school level. And, and how do you do that? Well, we focus on three areas. We focus on leadership, culture, and behavior. It's called the performance pathway. Leaders create the culture that drives the behavior that produces results. If we reverse engineer that and we look at every result that a coach would want on the field or off the field, in wins and losses, in character, in leadership, um, if it's relevant, obviously, in the classroom, depending on, on – where the, where the person listening is situated, there's a result that you want. And every result in your program is directly tied to the behavior of people. It, it stands to reason that if we get better behavior, we're going to produce better results. And if we want better results, we have to get better behavior. Look, if it was as simple as identifying a good strategy and just putting the strategy in place and that would get us the results – not only would our teams be better, but our families would be better. Our companies would be better. Shoot, our, our entire country would be better if it just came down to identifying the strategy and going over the technique of the X's and O's. But executing isn't a strategic issue. It's a behavioral issue. And so what we do is we inject the required level of discipline systematically and simply into the leader's into the culture of the program, and most specifically, into the behavior of people to produce the results that they want. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and it's, it's interesting. On, on those three, if you look at everything in your program, and, and for the listener, just think about your team and think about everything going into your program. Think about your role. And every technical side, every strategic side, every process side of your role it hinges and then will be executed 
not based on the clarity of that strategy, but based on how it's led, whether the culture actually aligns with that strategy, and then whether or not people have the discipline to behave in alignment with that strategy. More often than not, it's leadership, culture, and behavior that are going to determine how well you execute your strategy. I definitely want to dive more into culture. Real quick, I want to take a step back uh, as, as we're still kind of at the beginning of this conversation. I want to learn a little bit about Brian Kite. I want to get your background, um, you know, how you kind of came up in the football space and, uh, yeah. and how you started um, Focus 3 and, and kind of got this ball rolling. Yeah, so the, 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 my dad started Focus 3. Uh, his name's Tim Kite. Uh, he's still we're, – we're, we're co-owners in the business, and he is, uh, he is as active, if not even more so, than I am. And, and so I, I, he's been my mentor for uh, not just my entire adult and professional life, but my entire life. And um, everything that I'm doing now, I, I owe to, to his guidance, to his leadership, to his mentorship. And it's, a, it's just unbelievably fun to be able to work with your dad. So uh, I grew up in, in our home. We, we grew up talking two things around the dinner table. We talked business and we talked football. And I had the advantage of having somebody in my house who, who knew quite a bit about both of those. And for the most part, he was a, he was a, a you know, ran a one man shop and, and advised and consulted businesses his entire life. And, and I got to chat with him about those things. Uh, as I got older, I, 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 in my college years, I didn't really, I played college football at Worcester in Northeast Ohio mm-hmm. and uh, a division three school. And, and I kind of had it in my mind that I, I didn't want to work in business and I didn't want to work with my dad, probably for those reasons that, you know, young men think, you know, at, at those younger years, why, why that might be problematic. And so when I graduated college after playing all four years, what I noticed in college was on my team and on other teams, uh, despite having you know lots of good athletes and lots of really good people, that the biggest performance gap that I was that I was able to directly observe again on my team and on other teams wasn't an athletic gap or intelligence gap, but a leadership gap, a an alignment gap, a mindset gap by staff or by athletes. But nobody wants to hear that from the student athlete directly, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So so right. So so when I graduated, I said, well, hey, what I want to do is. I want to go coach coaches and it, and it sounds weird. And I, sometimes coaches take this critical, but I encourage you don't be critical in how you think about this. The most undercoached profession I recognized in America is coaches. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not to be confused with going to clinics and sharing ideas. Cause we all know most of what gets shared around at clinics is simply the same old regurgitated stuff that we struggle to execute with discipline because of leadership, culture, or behavior issues. And what I noticed was this average coaches use quotes, good coaches have plans, but elite coaches, they use systems. That's great. So what I want to do is I wanted to go build systems. So after I graduated college, I went out, I wanted to go coach coaches and Dan, I could not get hired by one coach in America, not one. And, um, I tell the story a lot, but the coaches who rejected me the fastest were the career 500 coaches with no championships. Mm-hmm. And it didn't, it didn't discourage or, di- or dishearten me. Uh, it surprised me and it frustrated me. And so what I did was I went and I worked in business and I worked, I started helping out my dad and, and he was very wise in his, in his, uh, bringing me on. And he said, look, uh, 
if you're going to work in the business, you, you got to deliver value and you got to be able to cut it because I'm not going to get rid of a client so that my son can work in the business. Uh, I will get rid of my son so that my client gets served and we can maintain you know, the business. And so I was sink or swim with him. And, uh, and I'm really glad that he did. I worked for 10 years in business in every industry you can imagine doing leadership, culture, behavior training, working my way up, um, learning how to sell, learning how to serve, learning how to, to operate in executive circles and did everything from recruiting on college campuses for some of our clients all the way up to working with fortune 500 and 100 CEOs and everywhere in between. And it wasn't until a decade after I started that we got our first real run at an athletic client, which happened to be Ohio State and Urban Meyer. And so my path was working for 10 years in the business sector with banks, hospitals, manufacturing firms, uh, insurance, accounting, and then a decade later getting an opportunity to finally work with athletics. And it just so happened to be one of the, one of the top uh, football institutions in America with one of the best coaches. And then, and then after that, the athletic side really took off. So you mentioned that when you first came out, before you did the 10 years in business, you know, you tried to go to coaches and really couldn't get much of a bite. So how do you, how do you get Urban Meyer, one of the most successful coaches, you know, in college football at a very storied program to take that leap and to, uh, and to invest in your product? Yeah. Well, first, just imagine yourself sitting in Urban Meyer's office trying to <laughs> communicate to him how to build a football program. And he's already got two national championships and and all of that. It was a, it was a, it was a fun meeting, but but it was it was intense at the exact same time. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's interesting. Um, he was I talk about this a lot of times when we do keynotes and we go out to we go out to talk about programs. If I look at the biggest difference between Urban and other coaches that we have encountered, um, it was his decisiveness and his humility about improving his program that separates him from others, in my opinion. He was sold and committed all in in under five minutes. He, wow. looked, at the, he looked at the tools and the systems that we provide. Uh, he said, tell me what you do. And I, I literally, in his office, it was it was me, it was the strength and conditioning coach, it was it was one of his trusted advisors, uh, myself and, and my dad. And we were in the office. He said, "Guys, here's Tim and Brian Kite from Focus Three. They teach and train leadership. Leadership is the most important thing in our program." And this is in the book above the line that that Urban put out about the 2014 national championship that has a lot of our content and structure in it that that he used throughout that, that championship 2014 season. Mm -hmm. But he said, he said, he said, you know, here's what these guys do. And he looked at us and said, guys, tell us what you got. And, and I, and I, and I mean this with absolute sincerity. It was three minutes. He put his hand up, paused, turned to the other two people in the room. And he said, this is it. We're <laughs> all in. Uh, so, 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 so wait. what it was, was it was simple. This is what, this is what, and this is what every coach and every business person and every educator was who work in school districts as well. This is what all of them tell us. And it's not, and we just do the work where we, we, we try to put it out there. And then this is what we hear from the market. The focus three approach, right, what Tim and Brian kind of built, it's simple, it's systematic and it's true. We call it the true part. We call physics, but they like it because it's simple. It's not complex. It's actually, you can execute it. It's systematic, meaning it overlays to whatever your environment or reality is. And it always works. And it's only your skill that can be variable. And then it's true. It's not, it's not a, uh, um, it's not 
hype. It's not pop psychology. It's not some cutting edge science that hasn't been validated yet. It's timeless. We call them 4,000 year old truths. But I, when I think about it, people ask me what I, what I do. And I, I, I joke, but I think it's accurate is I think of myself as a creative simplifier. How can I take things that have always been true and creatively simplify them to work for today's coaches? I don't want to invent anything new. I just want to take what's always been true and make it more simple and more systematic. So how do you, how do you go about doing that? How do you identify what's already true and then find ways to make it more simple? Because, you know, no no offense, that's not a revolutionary idea. People have always been trying to do that, but you've clearly done it more successfully. How? Yeah. People, people say that, by the way, Dan, people say, look, I I don't want to offend you, but this seems kind of obvious. I'm not, (laughs) I'm not offended. And I hope it's obvious because if it's obvious, that means it's resonating with the human spirit. And I like that. And so, uh, part of it is, I'll tell you this part of it is, you know, it's not about keeping, keeping secrets. We don't, we don't have any secrets, but part of it is I'm not entirely sure part of it is humility requires me to say, I can't tell you exactly why people find our tools simpler than others. I just know that they consistently do. I'll tell you some of the things that I do. I read a lot of old, old text. When I say 4,000 years, I genuinely mean that. Mm-hmm. I know most people, most people today don't want to read stuff that was written in 600 BC or written in 200 AD or written in 1400. I love reading those things. I like reading, uh, practical people who went out in the world in some form or another and actually had to execute, you know, leaders, generals, kings, um, you know, practical philosophers. What I don't like reading are people who sit in laboratories, newspaper columnists, uh, authors who've never been in the role of a coach or a producer or an executive or a salesperson. So you actually had to, you're interested in people who have seen the bullets fly basically. That's what I'm talking about. I, I, I'm a doer. I, yeah. At the end of the day, I'm a doer. I, I'm a competitor. Uh, I'm, I'm a practical operator. As, as an athlete, I was that. As a CEO, I am that. As a husband, as a father, as just a person in the world. I, I don't want to sit and write in a blog and get my theories in a blog. I want to know if it works on Friday night at 9.15 when your sophomore left tackle is tired. That's what, that's what I want to know. Does it work then? And can he, can that young man understand that? Can your, can your second year defensive coordinator who is you know, relatively new to the role and it's his first defensive coordinating job, can he maintain his mental and emotional composure in the semifinal state playoff game because he's been trained at a very deep level to have the personal discipline required in that particular role? I know that most coaches – and they're not unique in the coaching profession, but most coaches don't train that way. They, they, they tweet that way, but they don't train that way. I want to make sure that we are providing tools for people to train that way. And so if I have to put in 20 hours of study and then field testing myself and with some of our really close clients in order to get, you know, two structures of teaching mental discipline that, you know, take up 20 minutes of total training time to get it into somebody's head, then I'll invest those 20 hours. That For me, that's worth it. And what I've done and my dad has done is we've stacked up 25 years of doing that, and it's coming to bear now. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's this is, this is great stuff. Um, so how do, you, how do you prove that out, though? Like, how, how do you really get coaches to – to grasp it and buy in like what, what was it in those three minutes that you think made urban meyer go yep this is it 
Well, the first thing is it's not fundamentally different than uh, than teaching football. How do you get someone to buy in to cover three or RPO or um, hand placement on on you know D line or anything like that? Well, the first question is not a question of buy in. The first question is a question of when you teach it, can it be simply understood with minimum brain cycles? So can I sit down and in two or three minutes, can I explain it to you in a way that at least makes sense to you? You're not good at it yet. Maybe you're still fighting your own beliefs about what you think would work better, but at least what you're being taught makes sense. Mm -hmm. We bring the exact same approach to ours. So I don't worry about buy-in off the bat. I worry about, and I focus on truth, and I focus on does it make sense? And if it makes sense and it's true, then at least I've got your attention and we haven't rejected it. Then from that point forward, it's, is it valuable? Can you, can you see the line of sight as to how this would increase value in a particular important area for you? And then after that, it's about actually doing. A lot of coaches, and I think this is a good entrance point, when it comes to the topics of leadership or culture or behavior, if coaches never said the word buy-in ever again, they would lose nothing. In fact, they would gain a tremendous amount. Coaches, if you're listening to this, Stop saying the phrase buy-in. Stop asking for buy-in. Stop telling people they need to buy in. Here's the thing. People will buy in once it's useful and it's valuable because you've taught it well enough and they've actually tested it in an environment that shows them the ROI. But they won't buy in before that. And so if you're a really good teacher and if you're a really good um, explainer and if you have actually something worth buying into, then it'll make sense pretty you know, it makes sense really fast. If it's harder, then it's going to require what? It's going to require field testing. But I, I see this in business. I see it in athletics. I, you know, shoot, you see it in, in the educational environment with teachers and administrators asking for buy-in before it's had time to be validated. And so I say this, don't ask for buy-in, teach it, put them into reps and show them. And then once it works, you don't have to ask for buy-in. They'll do it willingly. Well, it, it's kind of a chicken and an egg thing, I guess. When you get the results, yes. obviously everybody's going to get behind it. But how, how do you go about, you know, before you can have those results, you have to put these processes in place. So how do you get people yeah. to say this is going to work before they've actually seen the results happen? That's the second piece. And we, we're, we would dig into this. Um, you know, we'll, I'll, I'll go light on it early and then we can, we can go as far as we want into it. But you said something really important right there. How do you make sure they know it's going to work before they start? And the answer is you can't on anything. Okay. For, for any person. I mean, how do I know squatting is going to help me be a better football player? I mean, there's no, there's no, I can't squat and then, and then say, all right, if you squat for a year and a half, you're going to score X number of touchdowns or you'll get a scholarship or you'll be a starter. You won't, but guess what? If you don't squat in your week, what are your chances of actually winning the matchup when your number's called? Not going to happen. Yeah. Not going to happen. And so let's put it on leadership, culture, and behavior. If you don't have a system for leadership, culture, and behavior, you don't train on it thoroughly. You don't understand the mechanics and you don't execute them when it comes down to the real moments that count. What are your chances of winning a championship? Well, they're not real great. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to, if you want to guarantee we're not the team for you. And I'll tell you this, nobody's going to be the team for you. And anybody who promises you a guarantee is selling you something. We don't sell anything. What I say is this, if you have a system for leadership, culture, and behavior, your chances of beating somebody who does not have that leadership system 
is significantly greater. But there are no guarantees. There's work. There's no guarantees that if you work extremely hard to parent your child, that your child is going to turn out exactly like you want, but you still do the work anyway. Why? Because you know not paying attention to it is going to make it highly variable. So when it comes down to our stuff, I don't want to give you a guarantee, and I'm not going to. What I'm going to tell you is this. We will be side by side with anybody who wants to go in, roll up their sleeves, and get to work with no guarantees. And I think that's something that coaches tend to ask of athletes uh-huh. that they don't always understand themselves when it comes to these kinds of tools. Coaches don't give athletes guarantees. What they tell them is, hey, if you come to practice and you work really hard and you train and you lift, you're going to be in a really, really good position. Then it's a matter of how hard you worked, how smart you worked, your level of talent, and then obviously the random chance that exists in the universe. The exact same thing happens with us. Go back to Ohio State's 2014 season. We did all of this training with Ohio State in Urban's second year. Uh, he did it first year, went 12 and 0, and then the second year we started working with him between years one and year two. We worked for this is this is a, a a a lot of people who reach out to us because of their familiarity with us with Ohio State forget this part of the story. We invested almost a year, year and a half of work and effort with Ohio State. Um, they went 12-0 and in that second season after we'd been working with them, and then they lost the Big Ten championship game with the national championship on the line. Right? The moment they needed their culture and leadership and behavioral alignment to work best, they lost. Mm-hmm. And then they went and played Clemson in the Orange Bowl and, and, and lost again. They lost two in a row. A lot of coaches would have said, hey, this culture stuff doesn't work. Urban and the staff said, you know what? We need to commit even deeper to this because we didn't lose because we didn't. We had, and you listen to him and go back to any of the press clippings. He said it in, in, in press conference at the press conference. We didn't lose because we had bad coaches, bad athletes, and bad strategies. We lost because we had not enough people culturally aligned. We had not enough people ready to perform. And we just we didn't have our behavioral discipline where it needed to be. And so they invested into that. And then here's what I think with the unpredictable element where it comes in. And let's use a real example. Who could have predicted at the start of the 2014 season that Braxton Miller would have torn his shoulder 12 days before game one? Nobody. Yeah, no one's predicting that. Yeah. Who, who could have predicted that JT was going to break his ankle at halfway through the Michigan game and Cardell would have to finish that game and then play the big 10 championship game against Wisconsin, start against Alabama in the semifinal and start against Oregon in the national championship. And Who could did. have predicted that before the season? Nobody. No. And they didn't miss but, a beat. And they didn't miss a beat. And so what happened was what the training took over for the unpredictable things that show up. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so I don't want to talk about guarantees or give coaches guarantees or tell you, hey, if you do this culture training, you're guaranteed to win a championship. You're not. You have to go compete. And, and variables are going to show up that you didn't plan for, you didn't ask for, and you couldn't have guessed or expected because that's how life works. What we want to do is make sure that when those situations come up, you have a reliable system to lean on and execute against. And that's why you train football so hard so that in the fourth quarter when you're tired, you know how to execute, you know, those 12 plays that you've practiced incessantly since, since August or since spring ball. And I want to make sure that your behavioral discipline, your mental training, your, your clarity as a coach is just as deeply ingrained and embedded because you have systems for not just for offense and defense and special teams, but you also have a system for culture and for leadership as well. You said something really interesting, um, a minute or two ago, you were talking about uh, the example with the squats and everything. The way that you're describing this, um, to me, it kind of sounds like 
you know, creating a culture, building leadership, it requires reps, just like, you know, reps on a bench rack, just like reps out on the field doing tackling drills. You have to practice this daily and actually like, you know, do mental repetitions. Am I saying that correctly? Absolutely. It's you're saying it exactly correct. And when you think about it, every decision, you know, at a, at a really basic level, every decision, every thought you have, decision you make, and action you engage in is repping something. It's either it's either repping discipline or it's repping default. There's a line in life. On one side of it is discipline, and that's that's that those things that are intentional, on purpose, and skillfully done. And then on the other side of that line, there's default. And that default are things that are impulsive, things that are autopilot, or things that are resistant in nature. Every thought, every decision, every action is a rep. And what we train in the system we implement, personally and professionally, is a discipline-driven system for getting reps. Those reps can happen in a classroom or in a training environment. They can happen in a simulated environment like a, a weight room or a practice environment or frankly, even role-playing and they can be repped in live fire and they can be repped, you know, in a, in a game, in a real conversation, you know, for coaches, uh, what I think is really interesting is that every drill is not only a rep for the athletes, but it's also a rep for the coach. That's a great point. It's a, it's a training rep for your skill as a communicator, as a trust earner. Okay. Think of it this way. Don't think of it as trust building. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but just to change the, the lens through which you see it. Don't think of it as trust building as a coach. Think of it as trust earning. It's not the player's job to trust you. It's your job as a coach to earn that player's trust through your skill. Coaches, and I, we tell this to players and we tell this to coaches. Players should not trust coaches because they're coaches. Coaches need to earn players' trust because they've They've actually done the things deserving of trust. And that's, that's a complete flip lens. A title of coach does not, does not entitle you to trust from an athlete. Being the kind of person that, that deserves trust and earns trust and delivers experiences worth trusting in, that's how trust is built. Trust is built through experiencing your behavior, not through, not through the, the, the title or the role that you think is worth trusting. And so, yeah, I, I think of it as reps for everybody. That, that's fascinating stuff. Uh, Coach, I don't want to take any more of your time today. You've been very gracious, and you've given us a lot of good stuff. I'd love to chat more in the future about culture and everything, but it's been great talking yeah. to you, and hopefully we can get something hooked up in the future. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Dan. We thank Brian for generously giving us his time today and sharing some really insightful stuff. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check out more great podcasts at huddle.com backslash blog backslash radio. See ya.